Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Samir Rahim and I work at Prospect Magazine. This week we're talking to the writer Sam Leith, who's the literary editor of The Spectator just down the road for us, but who happily has been moonlighting uh, at other publications including Prospect. And we're going to be talking to him about the legendary comic book publisher Marvel Comics. And Sam wrote an essay about Marvel in the latest issue of Prospect particularly with reference to its famous creative leader, Stan Lee. Lee's creations, which include Spider-Man, X-Men, the Hulk and the Black Panther, are more than just men in tights, Sam writes. They also capture the social history of Lee's time and create a mythical American pantheon. Sam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Um, In the culture, there seems to be this divide um, between two kinds of what I could just describe as picture-based storytelling. There's the, we can call them comics, surely. There's the graphic novel, which sounds terribly respectable um, and upmarket, the kind of thing that's produced by Chris Ware and Adrian Tamine and graces the front cover as of uh, The New Yorker. And then there's just comics with superheroes and supervillains and lurid colours. And Sam, you've written a lot about comics over the years. Do you think that we undervalue them as art form? Well... I think we simultaneously probably undervalue them and overvalue them in the sense that for it feels like a battle that keeps being made. You know, every year or two years, there'll be a flurry of, you know, newspaper articles saying, at last, comics grow up. Um, and in fact, people have been making interesting working comics and, and, you know, or graphic novels or whatever you want to call them for quite a long time. Um, and the word, you know, this sort of, phrase graphic novel is one that actually I think quite a lot of um, you know the creators will sort of tend to reject as being a sort of I mean it was essentially a marketing gimmick devised by the industry to make make them suitable for grown-ups you know like publishing Harry Potter in grown-up covers um, in some way there's a, the, the bigger divide is between comics CS and comics with an X which are the sort of you know, underground comics of the of the sort of sixties and seventies, the R. Crumbs and the Gilbert Shelton and Fat Freddy's Cat and the Freak Brothers and so forth, the kind of psychedelic dissident comics, and then the, you know, superhero type. I think that when I say we simultaneously overvalue and un- undervalue them, what I mean by that is that there is definitely a large 
segment of the reading population who wouldn't tend to look at anything that's published in a graphic form and they pretty much write them off. At the same time, there is, I think, a very substantial minority of people who, rightly, I think, see them as an absolutely legitimate form of storytelling and able to do things that other literary forms can't, um, and yet which, because it's so keen to make the case for them, will sort of automatically overvalue them, if you see what I mean, by saying, you know, this is amazing, this is doing something a comic, you know, couldn't have done before. And in fact, comics have always been able to do interesting things. And I, I sometimes think of them as, you know, a play with, um, you know, pictures rather than people moving around a stage. You know, they've got a similar sort of relationship to to the, the, their literary content, their dialogue. And when did you start reading Reading them? Was it, was, it, was it a youthful passion for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I moved on from sort of Wither and Chips um, to, I guess I must have been eight or nine. And, you know, at the time, you know, Marvel Comics in the UK were not the enormous thing they are now, where everything's branded with Spider-Man or the Avengers and the movie franchises have taken over the world. They were sort of a bit select, you know, you'd, you'd kind of find the odd, the odd import in a new, news agent. Um, and they were these exciting and exotic things. And I remember, you know, I, I still have somewhere in a box, much scrunched up, I, an edition of the New Mutants, probably in the single, di double or single digits um, publication number, you know, it was like issue 18 or issue 34 or something. Um, and this was just something I had, it was so much more exciting than any, any sort of British stuff. Um, and it's particularly those sort of superhero comics, the X-Men under Chris Claremont and the New Mutants, you know, they were about mutants. They're about these people who, when they turned into adolescents, didn't acquire, as the rest of us did, you know, crippling shyness and halitosis and acne, but the ability to, you know, turn on fire or walk through walls or fly or explode, um, which was a very attractive prospect to those of us, you know, teetering on the brink of adolescence itself. So you could see in some ways why these things were such powerful, you know, had such a powerful appeal to kids. And so, you know, I, I continued to read and devour these American comics particularly the Marvel Universe, though I sort of strayed into DC for Watchmen and, you know, Batman and Swamp Thing and, and Alan Moore's work. Um, but, you know, I, I, the, the habit never completely lost me. Though now I buy the, you know, I can't, I can't be doing with collecting the extremely expensive individual issues now. I just wait for the trade paperbacks to come out. Um, but then that sort of, I guess, led me on to taking an interest in if you like, the more grown-up stuff. Um, and people like Art Spiegelman and Chris Ware and Dan Clues and all those kind of, essentially that sort of wave of comics writers who sort of made comics respectable. Going back to, to Marvel, the piece you write is about Stan Lee. It's a review of uh, a new biography of him. And, and, and you write at the start of your review that there was a period in the 1960s where he just seemed to be on this golden streak and created some of these um, sort of most famous figures in, in all of comics history. How, how did that happen? Well, he was very much on the point of quitting. This character called Frederick Wortham, who was a psychiatrist um, and, by all accounts, essentially a kind of charlatan, 
crusaded in a sort of self-publicising way against comics, which he said were, you know, destroying children's lives and wrecking young minds and, um, you know, they were pornographic and violent and evil. Um, and at the time, there was a, you know, I mean, the comics industry was was very much not quite underground, you know, it was very successful, but it was, you know, it was kind of unregulated, it was bandit country, there were all these titles like the EC comics, which Stephen King grew up with, you know, Tales from the Crypt, and, you know, they were full of sex and violence and, and suggestiveness and all sorts. Um, and basically, they were facing the prospect of censorship, so they opted to jump before they were pushed, and they developed this thing called the Comics Code, which was a sort of self-censorship thing, essentially. But that basically cropped, or threatened to crop the creativity of a whole range of these comics and make a number of comics publishers more or less unviable. And Stan Lee was working I th for the then, I think it was Atlas Comics, was the predecessor of Marvel, and he was essentially about to throw in the towel and quit. But he threw what his biographer, um, Leah Leibovitz, describes as, as a kind of Hail Mary pass, and he and Jack Kirby, one of the other great geniuses of comics and co-creator of Captain America, um, they basically cooked up the Fantastic Four, more or less overnight, in order to cash in on the sort of super team, superhero craze. And the, the, they just took off massively. I mean, the Fantastic Four did something that was a bit different. As, as Leibovitz notes, you know, the kind of founding figures in the superhero comics industry are basically you know, Batman and Superman. They are the Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson of the of the genre. Um, but they were both sort of archetypes of a very sort of one-dimensional form. You know, they were essentially not quite human, something beyond human. I mean, Superman literally inhuman, Batman human, but kind of perfect. Um, you know, he's tortured. He has his, he has his tragic deforming origin story, which almost all of them do have. But after that, he's basically cleverer, richer, better at fighting, more cunning, more scary, better dressed than anybody else. Superman, obviously, is essentially God. Um, and Stan went, look, what if I make some superheroes who are much more kind of relatably human? Um, and so the Fantastic Four, you know, two of them are married. They bicker, they feud, they fall out, they get grumpy, they have a, a sort of whole set of very human dynamics and a sort of fallibility in them that made them attractive and relatable in a way that their their great predecessors had not been. And that was always the sort of selling point in Marvel Comics, you know, the heroes were a lot, a lot more sort of ordinary psychologically and complex psychologically than the sort of, you know, S Superman, Batman, first wave of superheroes. And anyway, sorry, when the Fantastic Four took off, they quickly went back to the drawing board and produced, in very short order, you know, The Incredible Hulk, The X-Men, um, Doctor Strange. There's a whole, I mean, within about 10 years, practically the entire Marvel pantheon had come flowing out from Stan's pen. As a character like The, the Incredible Hulk, um, obviously has the sort of, the idea of the, the anger within and the power, and, and he became quite a sort of 60s emblem, emblem didn't he? He did, according to this book, which I hadn't known. I think he appeared on sort of, I think it was Time magazine or Esquire, produced a list of the sort of 50 most important figures of the age. And the Incredible Hulk was, you know, right up there. And he was 
massively taken up on kind of college campuses, you know, alongside those sort of Herman Hess posters and, you know, um, anti-war things. There was, you know, there was the Hulk. Um, and I think the Hulk was interesting because, you know, he, again, revived, as so many of these characters did, a, a very storied, long-running kind of archetype in a new form. You know, I mean, he's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's absolutely the sort of split personality. Um, and, and, and as Leibovitz says, he's, he's called Gollum and Dibbuk in the same, in the same person. And so he became a very, you know, attractive archetype. I mean, actually, I always found Hulk comics a bit, bit hard to get on with because the Hulk's so strong that, you know, essentially all he does is turn into the Incredible Hulk, bash stuff up, and then turn back into Bruce Banner and sort of wander wearily off, sighing. But, you know, he had a kind of existential chic. And also, um, what are these figures telling us about America? You know, the idea of, um, in Spider-Man, there's that famous line, isn't there? With great power comes great responsibility. And, uh, you know, can we trace a sort of history of sort of American self-confidence and then doubting its own self-confidence through these figures? Well, I think they certainly speak to their times a little bit. I mean, for one thing, you know, Spider-Man was a teenager in an age when being a teenager was was sort of important and coming to the fore in the culture. Um, anyway, it hadn't quite before. Spider-Man had a whole subplot that dealt with the drugs panic. I remember his best friend, um, you know, his, his arch enemy, you, you, you will of course remember, is the Green Goblin, um, who's Norman Osborn, and Norman's son, whatever he's called, um, were, became addicted to drugs at one point. And there's a whole sort of run of, of you know, drug panic Spider-Man comics. Um, in terms of the sort of race relations, you know, well, the Black Panthers there, um, Iron Fist and Power Man came in the 70s to, and sort of Luke Cage. You know, there was a whole, there was a sort of black exploitation strand. I mean, very often they were sort of, you know, surfing the zeitgeist rather than completely shaping it. Um, and one of the strongest, most enduring kind of mythic archetypes that they deal with, or sociological issues they deal with, has been the X-Men became the sort of all-purpose image of a persecuted minority because, you know, they are mutants and they pass among us and yet humankind hates and fears them and they send out these killer robots called Sentinels to try and kill them and there's always a, somebody in the government basically trying to exterminate mutants. Um, and so this became, at least in the hands of certain writers, particularly Chris Claremont, subtextually either a stand-in for anti-Semitism and the history of the Holocaust and all that, but also for the civil rights struggle. I mean, Professor X, who is essentially a kind of gradualist and integrationist, a sort of let's all get along kind of guy, is the sort of Martin Luther King figure and you've got Magneto of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who's essentially, you know, we can never trust humankind. We have to rule over them or exterminate them, um, who becomes the sort of militant Malcolm X type. And the comics were aware of all these, of all these connotations, and they, they played with them. Um, obviously, different writers to different extents. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's sort of all there. You know, you can see it reflected in a kind of funhouse mirror in the comics. 
You picked up uh, on the Jewish element there, and this biography is in a sort of Jewish live series, isn't it? And so um, to what extent was Stan Lee and indeed the other comics writers of his era, a lot of them were Jewish, and that did, that did feed into the, to the comics, didn't it? Well, hugely. And I think, um, I mean, there's been so much work done on this and so much discussed. I mean, in a way, it's, it's never been better expressed than in Michael Shaban's wonderful novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which essentially is a novel set in the early days of the comics industry in Manhattan. But most of the people who were you know, writing these comics were Jewish. Um, it, the industry was modelled on the piecework kind of structure of the garment industry, in which you know, generally overwhelmingly Jewish immigrant workers were employed. Um, you know, it's piecework. You basically, you turned up, you banged out your 12 pages, you got paid for your 12 pages, and, you know, the next day you did another 12 pages, and that was that. You know, there was no security of tenure, there was no sense that the characters belonged to you, which, obviously, when, most notoriously, Superman became a sort of multi-squillion dollar proposition. It's his, his creators, um, Siegel and Schuster, spent years and years and years fighting for some sort of recognition or rights over the character, because essentially the characters belonged to the, the publishers. Um, and as people have again pointed out, you know, there was a lot in the early fantasies of superheroism coming after the events of the Second World War and that time in European history, where the comics were about skinny kids who were easily beaten up, who suddenly turned around and were powerful, were good, were unimpeachable, were able to defend themselves. Um, I mean, you know, one of the most sort of earliest Captain America comics has him literally kind of punching Hitler on the jaw. And, you know, for Jack Kirby, the co-creator of Captain America, yeah, that was, that was sort of, you know, essentially the strong, strong Jewish kid coming back and getting revenge. You know, there was a, there was very expressly a sort of sense in which, just as in Israel, there's the archetype, you know, we want, want to create the strong Jew. Um, that was sort of what the comics did. There was a kind of retributive wish fulfillment aspect to them I think um, and you know they're created by Jewish kids who absolutely grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. And the idea of sort of secret identities and passing and being someone else and turning in the track that immigrant story is very and feeds into it very much doesn't it? Hugely hugely I mean it, it you know it has a sort of um, I mean it, you know it has a sort of universality to it but absolutely the idea of you know, passing and having a secret self are—I mean—they appeal to every adolescent, of course. You know, they are what um, what what sometimes called latency fantasies, um, but they also particularly have a sort of Jewish connotation in that in that sense. And you know, Captain America is Steve Rogers, who starts out as this sort of figure who's a sort of—you know—he's literally injected with a serum that turns him into an eternal super soldier. You know, it's a fantasy everyone can get behind. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so Stan Lee um, has, got, has got to become famous in a later generation as well because you know he, obviously he invented a lot of the characters in the marvel cinematic universe you know this sequence of i don't know how many is 20 22 23 films started i think with iron man and ended a couple of years ago with the avengers um end game and he he sort of appeared in those movies doing his little sort of weird cameos which if you if like me you don't know much about it but if you just got into the movies you're like who is this guy who's just appearing all the time in these films and these appearing from a different, a different, as it were, universe? Um, how do you, um, how do you think that the the movies, amazingly successful as they've been, how do you think that they sort of um, managed to sort of reinvent those figures? Well, I think one of the ways that they've been successful is in is in kind of honouring the source material a bit, and you know, having these Stan cameos is a nod to that, I think. I mean, they've found a public far, far beyond comics fandom. But I think, you know, what they did cleverly and quite consciously to start with was not to... was to start with the comics fandom, if you like, to take writers and, you know, producers and showrunners who kind of got the comics, who knew what it was about them that made them work and who would put in a few little Easter eggs and, you know, you'd, you'd be able to go, you know, you'd look at any of these movies and there'll be a character in the background and people go, oh, that's, that's an X minor character somewhere in the canon of the X-Men and, you know, oh, that's what they've done with him or her. And so they sort of started, they started from home, if you like. Um, but in terms of reinventing them, I think that's, that's what these comics are wonderfully available for. And I mean, I, I don't speak kind of entirely like idly or as a as a sort of form of, you know, benevolent hyperbole when I say that I really do think that they work like myths. I mean, I th I'm, I'm using this to talk ideally in a in a sort of analytical way because they're different from most fictional narratives and much more like most mythic narratives. In the first place, they're massively open ended and they you know, they've been going on, as I say in the piece, you know, I think they probably are the longest running continuities in the whole of human history, you know, which which makes them, to me at least, of interest to everyone. Um, the characters, there's the famous Bucky clause where nobody ever stays dead except for Bucky and Uncle Ben, which had to be revised because Bucky came back to life as the Winter Soldier. Um, Bucky being Captain America's original sidekick. Um, and in fact, I think Uncle Ben has come back a few times too. You know, nobody stays dead 
in the Marvel Universe. So they don't have any of that ordinary jeopardy. Every character has multiple, multiple avatars. There are alternative universes, there are alternate realities, alternate timelines, time travel stories, they're recast, you know, you get, um, you know, they, they, they get zoomed back to the sort of Jacobean era in one of Neil Gaiman's stories. They appear in the fast, you know, they're, they're sort of endlessly reproducible and tweakable. I mean, they're essential, like myths, their essential characteristics remain the same. You know, Spider-Man's like a bit screwed up and essentially good and he can shoot webs and climb walls. And other than that, you know, everything around them changes. There's a, you know, there's that wonderful animated movie, um, Into the Spider-Verse, where it brought together you know, one one of the comics continuities where Miles Morales is the ultimate Spider-Man, where Spider-Man's black, um, the and he becomes a central continuity. You get one of the original Spider-Mans. You get another of the sort of ordinary universe Spider-Mans. You get Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, who was a kind of comedy spin-off, I think, from the late seventies. You get. Spider-Man Noir, you get Spider-Gwen, who's a sort of later incarnation where Gwen Stacy, Spider-Man's first girlfriend, is killed in the original central continuity. Actually, in another continuity, she herself becomes Spider-Woman and she's Spider-Gwen and, you know. So they are very odd as literary artefacts. You know, they, they don't behave like normal narratives because, in a sense, nothing's at stake. But I think they work because in the same way that myths work, in that they kind of go over and over similar story arcs and patterns and they add to this vast continuity and they are able to stand in for all sorts of things. So as, you know, as we've discussed, the X-Men can be an allegory for the Jewish experience. It can be an allegory for the experience of being, you know, black or ethnic minority in the States. Um, and it can stand for being a teenager. You know, they're, they're very... Polysemous, and they're available to be rewritten and gone over endlessly. Yeah, and just thinking about the the movies, just tracing back. I think Iron Man was two thousand and seven, something like that. Rewatching it um, recently, as I rewatched quite a lot of these in lockdown. Uh, you know, it's a very America gung ho, uh, black sidekick, uh, woman at home sort of pepper pot sort of thing. You know, it's a quite a traditional. Uh, action movie and that can you know that's how that's how they were made then and then if you think about how they've developed over the last 15 or 20 years you've just you know the female characters have got a lot stronger and had their own movies you had black panther film um there's been also a lot more sort of in a way questioning of the civil war narrative what is america really about and what is how they should they should go about things and they've got you know they've been managed to be protein enough as you say to accommodate all the new political um developments yes they do have a lovely thing for, uh, expression they use in comics to call retconning retrospective continuity which is basically going back to change the continuity so you can you know ch change it as you like you know oh we got killed at the last end of the last episode oh actually you know what we didn't show you is he escaped from the bottom of the pit and you know he's back or actually this character was x all along um i, mean, I think it is interesting in the civil war narrative you mentioned which again is lifted straight from a, a comics sort of crossover event um from i don't know 15 20 years ago is one that probes one of the sort of central you know loose tooth issues that all these things put forward which is Essentially, 
the premise of superhero movies is that you've got these characters who have godlike powers, and yet it's they wander around dispensing justice as they personally see fit, without any sort of legal framework whatsoever, without being answerable to anyone except, you know, themselves, um, and that we're cool with that. And obviously, one side of America's myth is absolutely that. I mean, if you look at the, you know, bedeviled by ideological you know, hashtag problematic issues as it is, you know, the frontier narrative of the man with no name who rides into town and, you know, does what he's got to do and then rides out of town. Um, that's what these characters are. Um, but at the same time, America is a country that theoretically values its constitution and its rule of law. So where do they stand? And the Civil War narrative pits Captain America. Actually, oddly enough, you might think he'd be the goody two-shoes who wants to submit to regulation, but he becomes the, the kind of incarnation of the American right to freedom and liberty, and though he doesn't bear arms, a sort of Second Amendment view of the world where, you know, a well-regulated militia is all that stands between you and tyranny. And Iron Man, because he's obviously the military-industrial complex made flesh, though he doesn't think of it that way, um, is all about getting on board with government regulation and registering the soups and you know, so he and Captain America end up having a massive ding-dong. Um, and I can't even really remember how it ends. But anyway, they all go back to normal at the end, which is the other great benefit of these comics. And now that, you know, we've got Trump in the, the White House and he's a sort of comic book villain himself, really, isn't he? Um, how, you know, how, how are comics responding to American now, as it were? That's a Good question. I haven't actually been reading superhero comics widely or recently enough to have seen any kind of major plot lines that have taken Trump on board directly. Um, I mean, I I suspect they're doing as they always do, which is to be slightly oblique, um, but have characters who will, you know, I mean, he is a very obvious, though slightly, I mean, he's more a Deadpool villain, really, than a, a mainstream you know, X-Men or Avengers villain, because he's slightly too comical. Um, but the themes and issues that arise with him, you know, are absolutely meat and drink to the Marvel Universe. And in fact, there is a, a, re a book recently that Peter Biskind, I think that's his name, the Easy Rider's Raging Bulls guy, wrote, in which he argues that the centrality of these big blockbuster superhero movies to the culture have contributed to you know, the rise of Trump and Trumpism and that sort of individualistic strongman politics um, and that, you know, we, we have got a sort of superhero culture and that that isn't necessarily to the good. Um, but, you know, I, I tend to try and defend the comics there. I mean, I think they're subtler than that in their unsubtle way. In the last uh, Avengers movie, and I don't think I was the only person to spot this, when Captain America sort of disappears from the timeline and, and it reappears very aged. He does bear a distinctive resemblance to Joe Biden. Oh! <laughs> so I was just wondering whether I hadn't really whether noticed that. planted but... that as something to, uh, you know, uh, reincarnated Captain oh, America to uh, come yes. save us all. Yes, no, well, well perhaps he will. Um, who knows what he has under that shirt? Pacemaker, possibly. <laughs> Sam, thanks very much for a wonderful discussion uh, of comics and um, all the myriad mythical wonders that they, uh, uh, that they provide. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
That's all from us on the Prospect interview. Thanks for joining us this week. Um, You can read Sam's essay in our new issue, which is out in the newsstands, and you can also read it on our website. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help us. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.